Hello, and welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, the Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's episode, the Russian anti-malware firm Kaspersky was in the news last week with a Washington Post story about close cooperation between the company and the Russian FSB intelligence services. We invite Dave Itell of the firm Immunity, Inc. back in to talk about the company's travails and whether internet security is at risk of being balkanized. Also this week, when application security startup Contrast announced a new round of funding recently, there was an unusual name on the list of the company's new backers, French insurance giant AXA. We talk with Contrast CEO Alan Newman about what is behind that investment and how application security is turning into everyone's problem. But first, there were reports from two firms last week about a sophisticated cyber attack against an industrial facility in the Middle East, reportedly Saudi Arabia. Used in the attack was a custom malware platform variously called Triton and Trisys that was designed specifically to target the Triconics safety instrument system controllers manufactured by the firm Schneider Electric. Experts called it the first ever attack on an industrial control safety system. But our first guest this week, Joe Weiss of Applied Control Associates, takes issue with that claim. More important, Weiss argues that industrial as well as critical infrastructure firms around the world are also vulnerable to attacks because they have failed to adequately separate safety and control systems on their networks, opening a door to hackers to cause physical damage to plant equipment and facilities. To start our conversation, I asked Joe to describe for us what is meant by safety systems within industrial facilities and how they work. Joe Weiss, Managing Partner, Applied Control Solutions. In the, if you will, instrumentation and controls systems, you have two types of systems. One is what could be considered basic process control, and that's you know, your instrumentation controls, your HMIs, all of that, for monitoring and controlling a process, which is to optimize how things are produced, if you will. And then theoretically independent of that are the safety systems. And the safety systems aren't there for productivity. The safety systems are there to make sure Bad things don't happen. In other words, that the pressure doesn't build up beyond a point that can burst a pipe. So the safety system is there monitoring, if you will, worst-case conditions to prevent a catastrophic failure. You know, like I say, a pipe breaking, uh, a boiler overheating, um, you know, a train running through a signal, you know, basic safety, these are your brakes. And theoretically, safety and control should never be, you know, integrated or connected. Because if they are, you no longer have safety. It's just another form of control. And what happened with Triconics and quite possibly with Stuxnet, is there was a mix of control and safety. So if you got to the control systems, you could also take out the safety systems. Now, nuclear plants have regulatory requirements preventing the mixing of safety and control. And that's going to have to now, and I hate to use the word have to, but I believe this is going to have to be changed in the non-nuclear world to say you should not and can't mix safety or control or we no longer have safety. That's, a, that's another really important outcome of what happened here because you should never have a safety system that somehow can be connected to a business network. So do these safety systems, I mean, are they really software systems? No, they're a combination of software and hardware, okay? So they're used in applications where, um, if you will, 
the engineering community has defined as being, you know, affecting what is called process safety. So you'll find that, like I say, in nuclear plants, offshore oil platforms, you know, water systems, where you could potentially have some form of catastrophic failure that could lead to damage to a facility or, you know, injuring or killing people. So, for example, that could be, you know, a chlorine tank. You sure don't want a chlorine tank to be leaking. So this is very special equipment. You know, it's a combination of hardware and software. You know, you asked about triconics. Triconics is used in, like I say, nuclear plants, chemical plants, refineries, water, rail. So across industries, it's not specific to a particular industry or type of facility. No, what it's specific to is the need to ultimately provide safe shutdown to a process. A control system is there, if you will, to regulate a process so that you can optimize what it does. A safety system is there to just sit there and watch until there is a need to shut it off, and then it must shut it off, you know, in a very, very short period of time, effectively with 100% success. The malware we're talking about would not have been part of the initial attack, so this organization would have already been compromised, and then this malware was really downloaded or uploaded by the attackers specifically to talk to this safety system, this Triconics uh, safety system, and it was purpose-built to do that. As you look at this, is... Is there anything new here, given, again, as you said, you know, we've seen this before with Stuxnet. So is there anything worth being worried about? Is there anything new or important with this particular incident? What happened the first time, and and again, it's kind of an unfortunate thing for what I'm saying, particularly here in the States, okay? The first time you had an attack on a safety system, it was against a country that could be viewed as being rogue. And so there was, if you will, a, uh, a wink and a nod that it's okay because, you know, these were bad guys. In this case, these were the bad guys going after, quote-unquote, good guys, doing effectively the same thing that happened to them. Sure. The genie is out of the bottle. And part of what I'm going to have in my blog is I have direct knowledge that Iran is knowledgeable about this kind of stuff. I mean, this shouldn't at all come as a surprise to people. And if it is, shame on them. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I was reporting on Stuxnet back when it happened. I mean, there were certainly many people, I think probably yourself included, who said, in essence, you know, we're, we're, this is letting the genie out of the bottle. This is, um, you know, Hiroshima or Nagasaki but for cyber weapons, and, and once we've unleashed us now, it's, you know, it's uh, no holds barred. Well, and I, one other point, you know, that we tried to bring up long ago, and I, because I'm thinking about it, I need to put this in too. When Stuxnet occurred, way too many people viewed this as an attack on semen because there were semen systems there. And the point being, and a number of us tried pointing this out, the reason it was attack on, on the semen systems is because that's what was installed in the tons. If that would have been ABB or Schneider or anybody else, I would, be, I, I, I would think very strongly they would have been able to do the same thing. Okay? We tried saying, I tried and a number of others kept trying to say, this is not a Siemens problem. This is a problem endemic to what happens when control systems are networked and not protected. And additionally, it's a problem with safety. Right. And people, way too many people didn't want to hear this. To the question of should we be worried about this attack, I think the answer is 
no, you should be worried about a similar type of attack, but tailored to your particular environment, whether, but given your industry and the hardware that you're using. Don't assume that it's going to be a you know cookie-cutter attack that looks like this. Like I say, this is almost Stuxnet redux, you know, second, you know, second coming. Um, you know, seven years later, and people are still acting surprised. How can you be surprised? Right. Right. And we are coming up on December 26 or whatever it is. We might expect that there's going to be something going on in Kiev uh, or the Ukraine. So we've seen those attacks as well, right? Yes. I mean, we saw it a year after the first. There was a second. And again, there were people who were surprised. And what's worse, you had NERC, you know, the North American Electric Reliability uh, Corporation, you know, after, after the first one saying, well, we're not going to do anything about this. And we're not changing our standards. The triconics can be used in fossil plants as well as nuclear. And I bring up fossil because it would be out of scope for the NERC SIPs. So isn't that a shameful thing to say, that this isn't even covered by the existing NERC standards? And this is a conversation we've had before. I think one of We've your... had before. We keep yeah. having the same conversation. Right. That NERC keeps trying to tell people, you know, that the grid is, is more secure, da-da-da-da-da. And every time something happens, it demonstrates, you know, beyond any shadow of a doubt, no, it isn't. Right. What they might say here is, well, this is a facility that's in the Middle East. It's not in the U.S., and that wouldn't happen on a U.S. facility. Is there any reason to think that there's truth to that claim? Which Zero. They, have, they haven't made, but I would assume that might be the claim. Zero. Right. The bottom line is, like I say... Uh, I can't tell you the number, but I can tell you absolutely that triconics are in many U.S. nuclear plants, and triconics has been, has gone through and gotten, you know, formal approval from the NRC to be used in nuclear plant safety systems. And triconics is triconics. It's not triconics Middle East versus triconics Indiana or something. Yeah. I mean, one of the big problems now, Joe, is, uh, as we discussed earlier, you do have a lot of um, now uh, companies that are really focusing on cybersecurity for the industrial control system space, um, as we've seen happen in kind of the broader IT security market. Oftentimes, that can result in a very fragmented take on any particular incident as companies look to sort of bend the incident to fit their marketing plan or, or cast a particular happening in light of what their technology happens to do. Is that a concern that we should have now, that there's you know venture capital money chasing information security tools for critical infrastructure? You mean, does ambulance chasing still exist? We know ambulance chasing exists. Exists. Do you worry that it's going to impede progress on some of these uh, issues? Yes, and, and I'll tell you why. The bulk of, when I say the bulk, I mean 90x percent has gone to network-centric companies. Level zero one is not the network. And this is almost where we were 10 years ago, just with control system networks themselves. Why did it take from 2000 when we started all that till roughly about 2012, 13, or 14, maybe 15, before, you know, the Clarities and, you know, Nozomi's and Passes and da-da-da-da-da really started entering this? It took quite a while, you know, and now you've got a lot. And, and a number of them are very good, but their focus is only a part of the problem, and that's the network. If you're a doctor and you can't trust your temperature or blood pressure readings, how do you make a diagnosis? Mm -hmm. Well, the bottom line is everybody that's in the cybersecurity field is on the diagnosis side. Mm -hmm. They're all on the network. Is there a role that Schneider Electric, as the maker of this product, should be playing in helping its customers to understand different uh, threat and attack scenarios and maybe implement or enable functions and features that could be in the product or maybe in, are in the product uh, that could help, uh, um, you know, counter an attack like this or keep it at bay? Well, I'm going to answer the question in a different way. Schneider Electric is a, is a very good, credible company, okay? This is, 
a very sophisticated attack against them, all right? The same way there was a very sophisticated attack against Siemens. But I would think there's probably a lot of lessons learned following Stuxnet from a communications and crisis management perspective of what do you do and say after something like this happens? Because one of the unfortunate parts of Stuxnet is Siemens did not exactly do a yeoman's job of how the messaging got out. Mm -hmm. There is nothing about this that is specific to Triconics, that was specific to Siemens per se, other than they happen to be where somebody wanted to attack. That's it. The issue is we only have a limited number of vendors, and those vendors support all types of facilities worldwide. So if you have a particular target, they just may happen to be there. This wasn't, in my belief, uh, hey, let's go after, you know, um, Triconics because we don't like Triconics. You know, they were at a facility of interest or facilities of interest. Again, there are very few companies that provide this type of technology. And they provide this type of technology for many, 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 many facilities worldwide. I, I'm sure there's all kinds of scrambling going on. I truly believe the vendors really do care. You're talking about a commercial company being targeted, you know, by a nation state. Can you really protect yourself from that? That that's really, really problematic. Schneider is a you know, is a very good company. We're being put in a bullseye we were never meant to be in. Joe Weiss of Applied Control Associates, thanks so much for coming in to speak with us at the Security Ledger Podcast. Paul, thank you for reaching out. Up next, the Washington Post's Ellen Nakashima last week reported on leaked court documents that suggest that FSB agents worked alongside Moscow-based Kaspersky Lab employees in that company's headquarters to gain access to computers controlled by a cyber criminal group dubbed Lurk. The report came a day after the U.S. President Donald Trump signed bipartisan legislation banning the use of software made by Kaspersky Lab by the U.S. government. In our second segment, I invite Dave Itell, the CEO of Immunity Inc., back into the studio to discuss the recent developments in the Kaspersky Lab story. Itell said that he's skeptical of Kaspersky's claims that it did not collude with the FSB on cyber offensive operations, but he also worries that the U.S. government's pursuit of sanctions against Kaspersky Lab could have consequences that stretch far beyond one small Russian firm. Joining us now in the Security Ledger podcast, we have Dave Itell, who is the CEO of Immunity, Inc. Dave, welcome to Security Ledger Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, President Donald Trump signed a uh, bill yesterday that kind of lays down some guidance on cybersecurity, including prohibitions on government agencies using software by Kaspersky Lab, uh, the Russian anti-malware vendor. And we've talked about this before, but will it have any practical effect? And you know, where do you see things going? Not just for Kaspersky, but a, a whole range of other vendors whose origins and motivations might now be suspect. This is a bigger problem than Kaspersky. You know, I, I think... Eugene Kaspersky would say that he is completely free and clear of all interference. I think the United States government and to some extent the United, the United Kingdom government has said they don't really believe it. And I, I don't know that I, as a, as a reader of the news, has an opinion one way or the other. I mean, I think the Kaspersky people are, think I'm pretty tilted against them. I feel bad for them, is, is, is realistic. But... You know, if you interpret the tea leaves, which I think are less tea leaves and more broadsides on the side of a van, then it's pretty clear the United States government thinks Kaspersky is a strategic vulnerability and does not want anything to do with it. I have a feeling someone also whispered to Best Buy and Target and, you know, Staples that they should pull it from the shelves as well. I don't like it doesn't seem at all suspicious that all of a sudden they're all pulling it out. And I know all my bank customers are pulling it out, you know, from the roots. Um, so the thing about this is that putting it in the law makes it so that a, a future administration can't just easily backtrack. And it, it gives everyone something to point to to say, well, you know, 
if we can't use it as part of a government agency and it's in the law, maybe we shouldn't be using it as part of a contractor. And if the contractors can't use it and the critical infrastructure can't use it, why should people who service those industries be able to use it? And it's sort of a, a network effect of just getting it out of the country without putting up an import ban, right? Like we're not saying you can't buy it. Feel free to buy it if you want to. None of us are though, right? Like and in fact, if you're if you're using this and you're doing work for the government agencies, it's going to create a huge amount of complexity for you to try and separate, you know, those those two things. Yes, it's it, it sends the clearest possible message to everybody, Kaspersky included. They close their D.C. office. They still have an office in Boston and they still have great people working for them uh, in Boston and elsewhere, of course. I mean, their technical work is always extremely good. Yeah. No one has ever said it wasn't. Uh, yeah. And but I mean, upsides and downsides to that. Right. So when they say things, sometimes they say dumb things. The reality is when Kaspersky comes out and says we're going to open our source code, he knows that doesn't at all address the issue. And everyone knows he knows that. So why is he saying that? You know, and, and some of the other ideas he's had, I don't think the measures he he wants to implement are bad ideas. I think they're great ideas. I just don't think they solve the problem he's trying to solve, uh, which is trust, realistically. It, it, I think he's got a trust issue with you know, serious parts of the US government that are believed by other parts of it and believed by the American people. And then, you know, United Kingdom as well and probably Australia and a few other places. Um, and you can't solve that in the ways that he's trying to solve it. A note for our listeners, if you like what you hear on the Security Ledger podcast, you should check out some of Security Ledger's other offerings, including our daily ledger, cybersecurity news update, and our curated weekly ledger newsletter. Go to securityledger.com forward slash subscribe to check it out. You had said back when we spoke you know, a month or two ago to look to the U.S., to, to look to Kaspersky's other big markets, which would be in the EU, particularly Germany, huge market for the company, uh, and and France. No word from them yet. Uh, certainly Germany has much closer ties to Russia than the United States does. Um, would you expect them to follow suit? Well, you're speaking clearly to some of the issues in this entire you know, ecosystem, which is that everything is done covertly. Like, you know, we, we don't have deterrence in the, the normal way because you know, there's no inspection regimes. There's no way to do anything in the open. And so it's possible that, yes, Germany is seriously considering removing it without telling anybody because it would upset. I mean, let's be honest. Most German industries are bankrolled by Russians. And that makes things very touchy, uh, you know, especially when this has the personal attention of a lot of, you know, very important Russians. So I find it. You know, I, I would not expect Germany to make as wide a claim on Kaspersky as France, perhaps. Um, I haven't seen France say anything about it yet, but then they would be slower. Um, and they probably care less because they probably don't use that much Kaspersky. Uh, you know, the UK, I believe Kaspersky had their headquarters in the UK for a while and some sense. It's a, well, it's, a, it's incorporated in the UK. Yeah. And I think there's probably, you know, for the UK to kick them out, think says a lot to take up the mantle that that eugene has thrown down and and expand this conversation you know every country has its domestic av uh, champions you know the u.s have uh, mcafee and Symantec. you know japan has trend spain has panda but let's go into that conversation because he is claiming that this is completely unfounded behavior on the u.s government he's claiming the u.s government is acting capriciously for no particular reason against his company in particular, which I think is a massive claim. The U.S. government's a big, slow beast. It is not a capricious event. That this, this would be crazy to, to, to think we would do something like that with no evidence whatsoever. And that's essentially what he's saying. But if it's true, if there is no evidence, then why are we doing it? At that point, he's just being used as deterrence. We're saying... We don't like Russia, what Russia did. We're just going to kill off the biggest Russian AV company for fun. Screw you guys. 
That's your penalty. We're just going to do it. That's what he's claiming is happening, which I don't think is happening. But it would also be very interesting from a completely different norm setting perspective. I mean, do you think that there is, in light of this, a a reticence or a reluctance to have any of these nationally, you know, these these non-U.S. based endpoint security companies with their software on U.S. government networks, whether that's uh, Trend or Panda or Bitdefender or you know any of the others. It, it, do you think that they're generalizing and saying, well, n- not we have specific issues with Kaspersky, but let's generalize this and just say let's just stick with with something that's homegrown if we're going to be using endpoint security at all. Uh, last I checked, the main DoD mail server ran Trend Micro, yeah, as their gateway. So, yeah. I mean, I think it it comes down to. Do we believe that the the governing regime in the countries where our supply chains come from protects that software from being used as signals intelligence? And that's a pretty clear answer, right? Like in some cases, yes. In some cases, no. And we're not going to say when. How common do you think it is that that, uh, there is a intelligence community uh, solid line connection between the, you know, national intelligence uh, uh, operation organ and uh, either the development support uh, group at these firms or or actually stuff in the code itself, in the application itself? Well, it sounds like, I mean, I don't know if you're referencing the Washington Post article that came out yesterday that said literally an FSB officer sat in Kaspersky HQ next to a Kaspersky engineer and they hacked into some random site for good reasons. And then that, and Eugene's like, well, this was not using any Kaspersky hardware or software. We, you know, we of course cooperate in shutting down botnets. And I'm like, well, if you cooperate with an FSB officer next to you, what else do you do, right? Like, how did they even meet? So some of these things are just, you know, like I, I have no reason to dislike Eugene Kaspersky. I hear he's quite likable. I just don't always believe him. There's really a cautionary tale here, isn't there, in governments intervening in private sector firms for their own ends, right? I mean, well, at the same time, we have the U.S. government claiming that this is entirely acceptable for them to do to U.S. corporations. I don't know if you've looked at what the FBI said about writs of assistance and stuff like that. They're like, yeah, if we want to have a backdoor inserted, we can do that without a warrant. That's their legal claim. So it's very hard to say the U.S. has is setting clear strategic norms here. We are definitely not. I don't want to paint a picture that, you know, Russia's evil. We are riding in a white horse to save the cyber community. Yeah. Because – we need to get our own house straight in terms of what we will and won't do. And we need to say it publicly at some point. And, you know, I think we've honestly may have missed the window. We may have lost that. Um, I think honestly, the state department failed us. That's just my honest belief. You know, I, I think what you're, what you're seeing is the, is, you know, sort of national boundaries popping up on the internet. Right. So, you know, it's, it's, it's becoming balkanized. It's becoming, uh, nationalized. It's true, but then companies don't have national boundaries, right? You're saying like we cannot draw a national boundary in between anything and IBM or any company, even my teeny tiny company here at Immunity. We have people all over the world because that's how you build a company today. Well, that may be how the company is structured, but from the perspective of potential customers, including foreign governments or favored firms, large firms within those governments, if they believe that IBM is crawling with intelligence community operatives and and code, then they're just going to assume that that connection exists, whether or not it does. And from IBM's standpoint, what's what does it matter whether it's true or whether they just believe it's true? The the outcome is the same. I agree with you. And I, I think that this is this is a major equities issue for the U.S. government to try to think about internally before we try to say what's good and bad. And what I, what I try to do is drive the conversation to sharing risk, right? If if we're going to claim we have public-private partnerships and that those are going to be above the board and we're going to make the right decisions regarding what companies need, then when you ask them to do an operation, if for your sample, like let's say you're Russian, let's say you're 
the Russian FSB asking Kaspersky to do an operation, you need to be able to insure them against the potential cost of that operation going sour, which is what this looks like. Obviously, no government would then ask a company to do anything. They, they want the companies to bear the risk, and they want to gain the benefits, the strategic benefits in many cases, which are shared amongst the whole country. So right. we, we don't have – there's no answers to these issues without a national guidance and without almost an international guidance, some sort of joining, and no one wants to give up any ground. Right. And and that conversation, I mean, that potential, that hypothetical conversation you had about, you know, the FSB or the CIA having a conversation with companies about the risks and benefits of doing a particular operation kind of gets at one of the un, one of the other variables here, which is what is your ability to say no as a CEO or an independent firm? Are you living in a country where no is actually an answer that will be accepted? I agree with you, and I think that's the United States' position on this, would be that even if Kaspersky has done nothing, no is not an option for Kaspersky as much as he says it is. Yeah, clearly. Right. Because, I mean, we've seen what happens to other companies that run afoul of the administration of Vladimir Putin, right, which is not pretty. I think it's a tragedy. I think Kaspersky was on track to be the first Russian technology firm to go public in Western markets uh, as of, you know, five or 10 years ago. Uh, I think everyone would agree that that's where they were heading. And, um, you know, fast forward and it's really they're a company that's in retreat, that's retreating back to their historical market of Russia and the former Soviet republics. Agreed. I mean, I think it is a tragedy. I think it's probably a multi-layered tragedy we haven't seen the end of yet. Yeah. I mean, it's a tragedy for the Russian people. It's a tragedy for the Russian economy. And if you look beyond Kaspersky, what's the next Kaspersky coming out of Russia? I can't even, I don't even know what that is. Well, there's positive technologies. There's a lot of good technology coming out of Russia. There's smart people there doing smart stuff. You know, as much as it's a small economy, there are segments where they do really interesting work. I mean, yes, I but always on a read small the Zero Nights papers. I mean, how much, how big do you need to be to start something like that's really good? Um, you know, that's the great thing about the internet economy. And, and so in that sense, if we do not get the supply chain issues worked out among us all, we are all going to suffer. And it's not just Russian companies that are going to suffer. Dave Vitell of Immunity Inc., thank you so much for coming on and talking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. <laughs> Thanks for having me. And finally, what is a global insurance firm doing investing in a small Silicon Valley startup that helps companies secure software applications? That's the question I had after reading about Contrast Security's latest funding round that saw French insurance giant AXA sidling up next to Microsoft to help fund the company's growth. In our final segment this week, we speak with Contrast President and CEO Alan Newman about why incidents like the Equifax breach have put the arcane topic of web application security on the radar for many different types of firms. Alan started by talking about how changes in the way applications are developed and deployed is changing the practice of application security. Alan Newman, president and CEO and also chairman of the board at Contrast Security. The problem of application security is growing. Right now, application spending uh, as a part of IT budgets around the world People are spending 30% or more of their IT budgets on applications. So it's one of the biggest categories of spending uh, of IT budgets around the world. But those applications are not secure. The big news generating item recently in the application space was the Equifax breach. Equifax, as you know, being a huge credit bureau, um, holding kind of PII on 150 or 200 million Americans, got breached at the application layer. And so it kind of highlights the need to protect the application layer. Our approach is quite different. We think that the uh, first generations of application security did not do a good job to uh, support the current environment. And what I'd say about that right now is the applications are being developed very differently than they were five or 10 years ago when people were using static code analysis on just the custom code. Now applications are built using libraries and open source. They're using frameworks like struts. They're built with API calls. They're assembled like a building block, 
And number two is they're developed in this agile way where code is quickly implemented and deployed on a daily or weekly basis. So the way that software is being written uh, has changed, and that means application security has to change with it and be much more accurate for those new architectures. And number two, application security is now is being, those applications are being deployed in different environments. Apps used to be deployed in the, uh, you know, in the data center behind a firewall of a large enterprise. Now applications are being deployed in hybrid cloud environments, in platform as a service, sometimes behind the firewall in an enterprise, but most of the time in some cloud or external environment. So securing and monitoring applications once they're deployed has become a much more difficult problem. And the, the traditional technology there, which is web application firewalls, are not doing a good job at that new deployment um, mindset. So mm -hmm. I think, to summarize contrast, we're really built to address the way applications are built today and the way that they're being deployed today, and doing that um, with a single technology that's highly accurate. So you just got a, an investment, you did an investment round in recent months, and then you had Microsoft Ventures and, and AXA, AXA, uh, which is an insurance group, sign on to that. Explain to us the AXA piece of it and uh, what uh, the investment arm of a large insurance group might be interested in a company like Contrast. Yeah, I think I think you're right. It's pretty fascinating, um, Paul. The, you know, as you said, Microsoft Ventures uh, does select and, and invest in, in technology companies, kind of, uh, I wouldn't say standard operating procedure, but for sure they're known for that. And we can talk about that later. But I think AXA and AXA Strategic Ventures is quite unique. Um, basically, depending on if you're basing it on revenue or assets uh, on the balance sheet, AXA is one of the top one or two largest insurers in the world. Maybe not as well known in, in the U.S., but certainly on a global basis and from an asset basis, the largest. And so what's interesting is uh, kind of how we started working with AXA is really in one way. Like many enterprise companies, they have a large internal uh, software development arm. And so people may not understand that non-tech companies, but certainly banks, insurers, uh, healthcare providers, all develop a tremendous amount of application software to run their business and interact with their patients, interact with their customers, et cetera. So AXA was a, is an uh, internal user. They started using uh, Contrast to help them secure new software projects that were using a DevOps or high-speed development methodology. And they loved the product. They loved it internally. And so that's how we started working together. Um, and, and, and then secondly, as a strategic imperative, AXA has decided that one of the fastest growing, you know, what, what insurance companies do is they insure risk. And they, take, they want to have a superior data set to be able to price that risk to uh, policyholders. So AXA has been an early leader in offering cyber insurance. What they uh, firmly believe is the best way to either reduce um, claims for people making claims against cyber insurance policies or just to protect their customers better, those end enterprises that they're working with must have the best state-of-the-art security practices and technologies in-house. And so I think that they're very excited to work with us because of the potential to uh, help their cyber clients. If the, if the cyber clients of AXA use contrast security, um, they will have lower risk. And that's good for both the enterprise and, of course, it's good for AXA. Interesting. So uh, possibly pushing best practices down, not only not only using it within their own organization, but uh, pushing it down potentially to uh, their many customers, right? Right. That's right. So I think they're excited because uh, they believe in our company. Obviously, as a, a venture arm of AXA, they want to get a good return. So they believe, first and foremost, it's a good investment in contrast security. Secondly, they know this can help accelerate their use within AXA uh, as a you know, access many global entities that are also writing software. So they believe this will help them secure their own business and their own software portfolio. And then third, benefit their customers and benefit their pro prospects. I think it's going to be a differentiator against uh, for AXA uh, versus other cyber insurers. So pretty exciting on those fronts. Um, and, uh, and again, it's not typical to have a, a, a Paris-based insurance, a global leader in insurance, invest in a Silicon Valley-based startup in cybersecurity. So it kind of says that the landscape's changing, and, and the only way to reduce risk is to form some of these new relationships. 
I mean, we're seeing this. Obviously, you mentioned the Equifax breach, which was tied back to a Apache Struts vulnerability that you know Equifax had not patched, um, but it underscored the role, the important role that open source platforms are playing in in leading you know Fortune 500, Fortune 100, you know Fortune 10 companies um, as a shift to this uh, agile um, uh, development uh, methodology and rely heavily on open source components. Talk about the contrast story around the software supply chain and how you help companies uh, manage that particular problem. We think about, as you as you mentioned, Paul, kind of in that same way, is that, um, first of all, there's, there's three fundamental things that we believe uh, enterprises must do to secure their software. Um, and uh, one of them is to, first of all, uh, do a software bill of materials or a software composition analysis. We think that's very important. You need to understand an inventory or a bill of materials of your software. We've offered that capability since our first product came out a few years ago. But in, most importantly, you also need to understand the security risk and the security posture of that. So besides doing um, software composition analysis, contrast those two other things, uh, we think that you need a tool for developers to as they're checking in code and as they're adding a library, as they're adding an API call, as they're adding a microservice, what you want to, them to understand the critical vulnerability that may have been introduced by either that component or their own custom code. That's what Contrast Assess is all about. Um, second is when you built the code, you want to have that software composition analysis and you want to know, uh, you know kind of what, both what libraries open source APIs are you using, containers, et cetera, but also um, um, are they in the code and are they being used by the code? Lots of times uh, uh, people link in libraries, but they're not actually being called. So from a security standpoint, that reduces some of the risk. And the third thing is imagine that application is deployed. Um, that's where you need to have runtime protection. It's kind of an instantaneous shield. It's the airbag, if you will, uh, uh, when a collision happens, how do you immediately shut off access to a new type of attack? And that's where application security in the past and software composition analysis hasn't helped the end users. So Contrast has a third product really aimed at, uh, at protecting during runtime an app, the application layer. And I think that's going to be an enormous new capability. Uh, and it's not just Contrast. Other companies are, are, are making nascent uh, offerings in this space. But our view of it is doing those three things, understanding what pieces of software are there, eliminating de um, the vulnerabilities during development, and then, of course, d during runtime, being able to stop an Equifax-type breach, a Struts 2 vulnerability. Um, that's something that our Runtime Protect product uh, um, offered the second that vulnerability hit. So it's, I think we, if you offer those three things, that's how we can secure enterprise software. It's how we can... Uh, take this highly vulnerable layer of the stack and, and make it a very manageable for large enterprises. We talk a lot about the Internet of Things and just how really every company is becoming a software company, whether they know it or not. Um, where do you, how do you see that affecting the growth uh, and development of contrast products and technology? Um, is IoT just another uh, use case? Um, but not fundamentally different from the contrast point of view? Uh, or are there unique uh, capabilities that you're going to need to add as code moves to uh, this huge population of connected devices? Yeah, I think, you know, and, and you mentioned, Paul, the, the reference to the, I think Mark Andreessen said this almost exactly five years ago. The quote was, uh, and, you know, famous venture capitalist said, software is eating the world. And uh, we certainly believe that. The, the number of companies that have 5 or 10 or 15 or 30 or 50,000 developers uh, is, is growing. Um, large healthcare companies that are really software companies. And, so, and then you have obviously the new business model folks, everyone from uh, a Lyft in the car sharing or Uber Lyft in the car sharing side. It's really a software app connecting supply and demand, the same with Airbnb. And now in the IoT world, whether it's, uh, it's um, devices like cars and, and Tesla vehicles, which are themselves big software machines, 
but communicating with a central command and control, and that certainly will happen in the industrial area. So we do believe this thesis of software eating the world will continue. There are estimates, Paul, there's 30 million software developers uh, writing code at some level uh, in 2017. They will write, uh, in terms of lines of new code, 111 billion lines of new code. What, and um, I happen to be old enough to have a son that graduated from a, a top uh, university in, in CompSci, and uh, still in top universities, kids are not taught um, secure coding practices. What that says to me is you have 30 million developers that need a new kind of tool um, uh, that, that, that doesn't make security, doesn't make them think about security, but helps them write secure code or protect them if they have written unsecured code. To scale security across 30 million people, you have to make it super easy. It has to be something that developers can use day in and day out that adds value to their process, just like Slack does in the developer community today or, or Microsoft Visual Studio may do for developers. So um, I think that's a, a key imperative. You, the final thing is you ask about IoT. Um, IoT, I, I believe, is going to be a very critical area. We think about it in two ways. The issue with IoT, because it's uh, Internet of Things, these things sometimes can have safety implications, whether it's a control system, and there's you know, kind of famous in the cyber world, Stuxnet and the control system on a centrifuge for you know, uranium enrichment. Um, the, uh, the, you, can, you can cause great cyber physical harm by taking over devices now. And of course, the concerns are around whether it's power grids around the world, uh, um, other uh, you know, mechanical processes, but it's everything from the, the DIN attack that was kind of um, the, uh, taken advantage of because of you know, the security protocols on, on cameras. Bottom line is the IoT will present some special challenges where we have to secure the device themselves and you have to secure the communication layer going back. The one thing I'd say, we still view this as um, if, if one IoT device is taken over, it's a problem, um, and so we have to increase the security around that, that kind of architecture. The real concern is if you go back and can gain control of multiple devices. Imagine all of the electric cars that are connected to a network get controlled those central command control and data still sit at corporate servers either in the cloud or behind a firewall. Those are run by and managed by application layers of the enterprises. So we think that it makes it even more important that businesses that have IoT-related um, kind of ventures and architectures, they must get their server-side software secure. Uh, and then they have this special additional uh, challenge of securing the devices and the communication layer between the two. I was thinking I was talking to a woman who uh, was the head of kind of manufacturing for a company that makes a very sophisticated teleconferencing system, which is, of course, sourced and built in China. And just so obviously this is something that, you know, could have huge value as a uh, data collection and surveillance tool. Right. So they have to be very careful about securing it not only for their customers, but also making sure that there's security down through the whole manufacturing process. Are these issues that come up with you and your customers as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the net of this, um, and it's both software in general and specifically in, in the IoT, if you think how, you know, right now there's an ongoing, uh, uh, there's kind of continuous recalls that happen in the automotive industry. It's been more regulated that you have to maintain a very detailed bill of materials the same thing happens in the in the supply chain for food, right? If you want to uh, prevent an outbreak of a, a you know a foodborne disease, you have to have kind of the the chain of title of who processed the food, et cetera. Well, I think in software, software is more complex than than you know grapes picked in or cantaloupe in Colorado, uh, and it's also even more complex than just the components that go into a car, including airbags and 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 tires, et cetera. Software is incredibly complex and it changes. So I think the um, what's going to be very important over the next several years is that companies really think of it as a manufacturing problem, and they they very uh, in a very detailed way manage the bill of materials of their software, and at all times they know what uh, the bill of materials is on each of their applications. And remember, some companies can have 20,000 internally written applications just for one large enterprise. So you have the bill of materials. And you most importantly know where those are. The, that bill of materials is comprised of an application, runs on these servers, or is in this cloud, in this networking configuration. Therefore, when something happens, just like uh, 
Well, it doesn't happen very efficiently in the automotive space. If you do a recall, you have to get the consumer to respond, and next time you drive into the dealership, you, they'll, they'll fix the issue. Um, if In software, we should be able to know where that is at all times, and we should be able to, because of the bill of materials and tracking it to a per-server uh, environment, we should be able to go in and, and do remediation more quickly. I don't think the industry is there yet, but I think the way to control, and it's both for IoT and for any, any kind of complex software, is understanding uh, what pieces you're using across every application, understanding at all times the security risk. And I think what people don't realize is you may have some potentially risky uh, software components that have a, a low chance of exploitation, but, but like any business, you have to do triage. You have to fix the riskiest things first. You have to address the ones that might impact your customers or business the most. And therefore, you want a constant view of your portfolio of software, of where there's security risk, what components are in use. So when the next uh, Struts 2, Apache Struts zero-day vulnerability shows up, you have the, you know, the, the war room, if you will, knowing which apps have to be fixed, where servers those are residing on, and you have to take immediate action to protect your data or your consumer's data, you can take that action. So I think for both IoT and just in general, that's where we'll, we'll move to is kind of a always-on, accurate, up-to-date bill of materials for software. Mm-hmm. And that'll give us a much better level of protection than we've had in the past. Mm-hmm. Anything that can happen at the policy level as a as a forcing function or force companies kind of do the right thing? I believe there'll be meaningful either legislation. I mean, if you think about um, where this is probably headed, right now CEOs and CFOs have to sign off on financial statements uh, and they certify that they're correct. And that's been a big improvement to make sure that accurate financials are portrayed to investors. I think that where we'll go longer term is that people have to sign off on that they've reviewed each part of their company's security policy and they know that it's state-of-the-art. I think that having accountability around that, it doesn't mean there won't be breaches, but making sure people are taking great and best-in-class care around their software assets, I think is going to be a new thing. You, you, you can't run a bank, you can't be insured as a bank if you don't have a the alarm system and the guard and a vault and security controls and processes, you can't be insured. Um, um, if like, Behind software sits incredible assets, and so we have to make sure there's, there's at least the acceptable minimum level of security put in around software. And, and so I, I, I do hope, and I think it will be good for the U.S. and around the world if we start to make sure what those responsibilities are, hold people accountable. And, and you know, we do that. I sign off every year on our own internal security policies around our software. And we're a smaller company. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's something that's coming and, and likely will be um, put to the test because of the, the breach of Equifax. Alan Newman, CEO of Contrast Security, thanks so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Thank you, Paul.